Mark chapter 5. They came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched them. Oh my goodness. He wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. You've heard this story before. Raise your hand. You've heard this one before. Anybody ever had questions about this one before? Hollywood likes this one. Have you ever noticed Hollywood likes some of the elements that you heard as I read that? In particular, we are legion. They like that particular line, um, and they use it all the time. Okay. This story about Jesus and what his, how he dealt with this encounter is is remember right on the heels of what we talked about last week, which is Jesus calming the storm. Jesus had been teaching on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. He had been teaching in the Capernaum area, and that's where the majority of his ministry was. And then he said, let's go to the other side of the sea. They get in the boat. On their way over, Jesus calms the sea in the middle of the storm. And when they get to the other side, they encounter this. Now what's really interesting, something I did not read, is verse 21, they get into the boat and go back to where they had come from. So that, to give you an idea of the setting of this story, Jesus had been teaching, Jesus crosses the sea because he tells them they want to cross, on the way there's this big storm and he tells it to stop and it does. They land on the other side. They have this experience with the demons and the pigs. And then they get back in the boat and go right back home. 
right back to Jesus' home base. They, they only go over for this purpose. Jesus intentionally, led by the Spirit of God, goes across the sea into this area, this, this region, to do one thing, and that's to have this encounter. And then he gets back in the boat and goes back home. So I, I want you to be aware of that before I go into all the details because I think that's important. Because when you and I do things, we typically have a reason for doing it. We get in our car and we drive somewhere, and then we go wherever else we're going, and it would feel weird if you packed the whole family up in the car, drove to uh, the park, got out and did something, and then got back in the car with all the kids and then drove back home. Everybody would be like, what are we, what, why, why did, we were just here, what are we doing? There was a, there's this, you would only do that if you had a specific reason to go to the other side. And they didn't just get in a car, they got in a boat and they traveled across the sea. So, I just want you to have that in your head. And when they landed, I want to go through this, the, 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 where they landed it says is the country of the Gerasenes. So there's a couple of things I want to talk about that on the other side of the sea. It's a small town um, of Gerasa. And that whole region, in Matthew chapter 8, actually calls it the Gadarenes, or Gadara, and so sometimes you get some debate over, well, where really was it? Well, it's kind of like saying um, that I live in Wayne County, which I don't, but I live in Wayne County, and then somebody clarifies and says, no, I live out Wayne. There's a difference, right? If you live in Lavalette, Homer, he, he lives in Wayne County, but he doesn't live out Wayne, right? But, it's, but everybody understands what we're saying because it's local geography, and that is really what's happening here where Matthew uses, uh, uses Gadara um, and Mark and Luke use um, this word here, Gerasenes. It's a small little village area that's near the sea. Um, also, you hear in this, in the geography, that there's something called the Decapolis. And all that means is it's a 10-city region. Did my mic shut off? Okay. It's a 10-city region um, of primarily Gentile cities. Now, that is really important because Jesus left a primarily Jewish community, got in the sea, and wound up now in a primarily Gentile context because Jews do not have pig farms. So one of, the, one of the characteristics of the story is, is you've got a herd of pigs. It's not 20 pigs at the Cabell County Fair. 2,000 pigs is a lot of pigs. We know that this region had Roman garrisons in it, and the Romans liked bacon, pork. Praise the Lord. Uh, they, so it would have been a lucrative thing to be a Gentile in that area and have a pig farm nearby because they were probably selling quite a bit of pork to the Roman garrisons that were there, not to mention the other, the other people that were nearby. So that area where this, this demon-possessed man is at is primarily Gentile. Let's talk about the man himself. Matthew actually tells us there are two men if you read the story that are there in the tombs, but there's one, whenever that happens in Scripture, 
what, what the author and uh, what Mark is doing is he's emphasizing the main guy. Matthew lets us know that there's two, but the main guy, the main leader, so to speak, of these uh, demon-possessed men is the one that we're dealing with in the story of Mark. So what is, what is going on in this crazy story? Well, part of what you're seeing is that demons come to kill, to steal, and destroy. In particular, we as human beings are made in the image of God, and this story directly shows that the demonic purpose in this guy's life is to totally twist, pervert, distort what the image of God should be, and that is what God, that's what demons are trying to do on a regular basis when they're interacting with people. So the, the, the way that he's described uh, is that he has an unclean spirit, and it also refers to demons. So those, ta- those terms are being used interchangeably. And look at some of the descriptions of what this guy is like. So this is totally abnormal. This is not like the, the guy that was demon-possessed in the synagogue. The guy that was demon-possessed earlier in the book of Mark in the synagogue, not sure they even knew he had a demon. But when Jesus started speaking, remember he spoke up and Jesus cast that demon out? With this guy, there is no question that he has a demon. There's no question at all. And the reason there's no question is the people in the region knew what this guy was like and knew what was going on. Just like everybody in a small little region knows about the crazy cat lady down the street, right? Everybody knows about the crazy cat lady. Everybody knows about the guy that if your baseball goes in his yard, you can't get. Everybody's seen the sandlot, right? Everybody, everybody has neighbors or little neighborhood legends uh, that people are afraid of, or the house down on the end, and everybody's like, that house is creepy. I'm not walking by that house at dark. How many of you know what I'm, you've had that experience in your life? Okay. This is that experience on steroids. This entire community knows about this guy, and they're terrified of him, and they have tried in the past to subdue him, and they have been unsuccessful. In fact, when, when you read here, especially in verse 4, he had been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart. We are talking supernatural strength that this guy had. You see that with the seven sons of uh, Siva in the book of Acts, when they try to cast out um, uh, the demon out of this guy, and they all get, they get beat up by him. Uh, this, this supernatural strength that this guy has is so much that they can't keep him bound. The other thing that you're seeing with him is he's naked. Now, it doesn't say specifically he's naked in Mark, but in the book of Luke, it says that this guy is naked. And he's, so let's, let's get this picture. He's so strong you can't bind him. He's naked, he's cutting himself, and he's screaming and crying out day and night. And the cherry on top He lives in the graveyard. Now this is not, I grew up next to a graveyard, okay? Wasn't creepy to me at all, maybe because I grew up there. Um, 
This is not a graveyard like the graveyards that we see with the nice little tombstones and all of that, and it's well kept. And That is not what these tombs would have been. These would have been catacombs or caves that were dark and they had uh, sepulchers inside. It would, not, it, would have been a, it would have been about as creepy of a place as you could possibly imagine. And for a Jew... This area and this region would have been unclean in every direction. So not only does the guy have an unclean spirit, but this region is filled with Gentiles who are unclean, Roman soldiers who are despicable. There are a gigantic pig farm nearby, which is completely unclean. And a Jew, if you got in touch with the dead or a tomb or the grave, you had to be you had seven days of purification rites that you had to go through to get clean again. So that there's, you can't, everything about this story says no good Jewish person should be here, and yet Jesus specifically goes here. And he's there for a reason. My sermon is about the three beggars that we read about here there are three beggars in this text and the first beggar that we encounter is the legion of demons let's look at verse uh verse six when he saw jesus from afar he ran and fell down before him and crying out with a loud voice he said what have you to do with me jesus son of the most high god I adjure you by God, do not torment me. The demons recognize Jesus by His name. They knew who He was. We can assume that because Jesus' ministry now has been going on for a little over a year, that the demons have been talking amongst themselves. There is a bulletin board somewhere in the demonic world that says, if you see this guy, go the other way. They are aware that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is on the planet. They are aware that God has come in the flesh. They are aware that this is terrifying. Now, Part of the reality of talking about demons, which I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about this morning, but part of the reality is is that there is a kingdom of Satan. It is not in competition with God. There is no struggle. We have a struggle. We don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but against principalities, power, might, dominion, and all of the junk of the devil. But there is no power struggle with God. Satan is not allowed beyond certain boundaries. God has him hemmed in. He's only allowed to go as far as God allows him to go. The best description I've ever heard is Satan is a lackey on a leash. So Satan is not allowed to go as far as he would like to go. But this is an extraordinary case an extreme demon possession of a man. Let me just say, if you are a Christian, you are not going to have a demon. Can I just throw that out there? There are Christians today who think otherwise. 
Uh, there isn't anything in the biblical text that even remotely suggests that Christians filled with the Holy Spirit can have demons. However, you have definitely dealt with them because the way that they work is primarily whispering, talking, trying to get you to do things that your flesh already wants to do. It's not like they're trying to convince you to do things that you don't want to do. Now, spiritually, you don't want to do them, and that's why Galatians says uh, that there is this conflict between the righteous spirit that we've received in Christ that wants to do the things of God and the flesh which does not want to do the things of God, and there is conflict so that you do not do the things that you wish. So, so demons are here. They're, Satan is called a tempter. He tries to tempt people to do things that their flesh wants to do and give you situations where you can fulfill those desires. Christians are going to fight with that their entire life, but that is not the same thing. Being tempted or being tried or the devil's harassment is not the same thing as demon possession. Demon possession is where Satan... These demons have control over the man to the degree that they are using his own vocal cords to talk. That is serious control. This guy is not in his right mind. He's being harassed, he's being tormented, he is possessed. And when he sees Jesus, the demons say, what have you to do with us? What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Jesus, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. So the demon has approached Jesus, and Jesus has commanded him to come out. And so the response of the demon is, don't torment me. And something really important, and if you've got the scripture, uh, Matthew chapter 8, verse 29, um, the demons there, they specifically say, are you here to torment us before the time? So the demons are aware that there is a specific time and a specific day of judgment coming their way. And they also know that this is not yet it. So what are you doing here? Why are you here? They are scared because they also know that Jesus has the authority and the power if He wanted to. And in the book of Luke it says, don't send us into the abyss. Don't send us into the pit. Don't send us into the place of torment that Jesus could have sent them there. So the demons recognize who Jesus is, and they recognize what Jesus can do, and they are begging Him, this is beggar number one, they are begging Him not to do that. Well, Jesus also recognizes that this is not the time of the final judgment. This is not the end of the age when I'm going to do that. So Jesus does not. One of the other things here, Jesus then says to them, what is your name? Now, if you have some questions about that, that's a good question. Because this is the only time that's recorded where Jesus ever asks a demon its name. I would suggest, or I would, 
my opinion would be the reason Jesus asked the name would be two reasons. Number one, this is an extraordinary demon possession. This is not regular. And we know it's not regular because the answer is our name is Legion because we're many. And what may be actually happening, happening is the demon is answering and saying, there's a lot of us. A legion is 6,000 in a Roman troop. A Roman, uh, the Roman legions were 6,000 in their armies. We don't know, I'm not sure that, that it means specifically there's 6,000 demons. But the idea is to convey there's a lot. The other reason is, do you notice that the demon names Jesus as well? That one of, one of the things in the ancient world that was understood is if you could name a thing, you could have authority over it. So, we've talked about this before, the demon names Jesus, and read this in several different commentaries where they think it's just a pathetic attempt on behalf of the devil to try to get some kind of upper hand here, but cannot and so Jesus just flips it right back around and says, what's your name? Legion, okay, this is what you're going to do. You're going to listen to what I have to say and you're going to go. Because that is what happens. Whatever the case is, Jesus asks the name. He gives it, my name is Legion, for we are many. In verse 10, he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. These demons like this particular area. They like this particular region. We don't know why. We aren't told why, but they like the area. Maybe the particular type of sin in that area they, they had a particular affinity for. I don't know. But they didn't want to go out of the country. There was a great herd of pigs, verse 11, feeding on the hillside, and they begged him. So you hear that word is used again. They begged him saying, send us into the pigs, let us enter them. Jesus allows it. And then the pigs run down the cliff into the water and drown. All 2,000 of them. Jesus is demonstrating that the ultimate intention of demons is to kill. And their ultimate intention for this man was to kill him. They're tormenting and the ultimate end of that torment was going to be his death. Jesus shows up and prevents that and stops that and says, yes, I will allow you to go into the pigs at this time. Now, there are people that struggle with this. They struggle with it because 2,000 innocent bacon factories were killed that day. In fact, there are some incredibly liberal theologians who have said, that this proves that Jesus wasn't sinless because He killed these innocent animals. Now some of you are shaking your head in derision, which is the appropriate response to that, uh, because that is ridiculous. But it is, and I want to quote R.C. Sproul on this, it is only when we become more and more pagan that we value the lives of pigs over people. The further we drift into our own version of what is morally right, we will become outraged over the death of animals 
and slaughter millions of babies in the womb. And just get all up in arms like they are in Texas currently over that law that prevents the slaughter of the unborn. We are more pagan than we think that we are in the way that we value the wrong things. Now, do not hear me wrong. Being cruel to animals and killing things for no reason is awful and wrong. We're to be stewards of God's creation. Dumping gasoline uh, into the river or just being irresponsible, that's not what we're supposed to be doing. But that's not what we're advocating, and that is not what Jesus is doing here. The prime value in this story is not pigs. The prime value is the man himself. He is valuable. Jesus crossed the sea to get to this demon-possessed man. Intentionally, on purpose, because that was the plan of God. Come rescue this tormented soul, and by doing so, spread the light of the truth of Jesus and His coming to the whole region, which is what happens. Men are more valuable than pigs. Jesus gave them permission. They enter the pigs, 2,000 of them, and they immediately commit suicide. Beggar number two. Look at verse 14. The herdsmen, the pig herdsmen, fled and told it in the city and in the country. So they leave this scene. Jesus and the disciples are still there, hanging out with the guy who no longer has a demon. And people came to see what it was that had happened. So now, the story is, you are not going to believe what just happened. Some guy gets off of a boat, and our welcome committee, you know who that is, right? The crazy guy that cuts himself screaming in the tombs. He came to, to attack him, and this guy made the demons leave. And it was, it was crazy because they entered pigs, and the, the herd that we watch, and they all went into the sea and drowned. You have got to come see this. That is, that is what they did. Maybe not exactly in those words. Who knows how they did it? But can, can you imagine somebody comes in and says, you've got to see what just happened. Remember the guy we tried to chain up? And some guy with a broken arm that doesn't work anymore is like, yeah, I, I remember. Yeah, that guy is in his right mind. So the whole town, the whole area, because it says in the city and in the country, People came to see what it was that had happened, and they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had, had the legion, sitting there. Now just imagine Jesus is sitting there with this guy and the disciples, and they're probably eating, they're probably around a campfire, they're probably talking. This guy's learning more about who Jesus is. He already knows he's the deliverer because he's been delivered but he's learning more. Who knows? It doesn't tell us. But there was a period of time that passed here where the demon-possessed man is talking to Jesus and the disciples. Now he's got clothes on. 
Somebody gave him some clothes. In his right mind. And they were afraid. Now I talked about this last week. Do you remember the disciples? The way Mark describes it. They were more scared after Jesus stopped the storm than during the storm. Because when mankind comes in contact with God, the holiness of God, the power of God, there is a holy awe and fear response. It's all throughout Scripture, people hitting the dirt in the presence of God. Oh my goodness, what do I do? They have the same reaction, except... They don't want to know any more about him. Look at what happens. Verse 17, And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. They want him out of there. What he has done is scarier to them than a demon-possessed guy cutting himself with stones in the tombs. What Jesus has done in delivering this guy and demonstrating his power over the demonic is actually more frightening to them than the demon-possessed man himself. So beggar number two are the people. Even though something great has happened in their midst, they're probably happy from a distance that it's happened, but they don't want the one who made it happen to stick around. There are lots of people in our world that are totally happy that you have a relationship with God as long as you keep it over there. There are plenty of people that are fine with you having religious opinions as long as you keep it over there. You've heard the old story about the kid who turned on the light in the basement Uh, and when he turned on the light, it revealed all the dirt and all the cockroaches and all the dust and all the cobwebs. And the other little kid says, turn off the light, you made it dirty. It wasn't the light that made it dirty. It was the light that showed that the condition of the basement was already dirty. And whenever the holiness and the power of God are on display, the one reaction that that mankind has consistently is the sense of their sin. The basement's dirty and you just turned on the light. Would you please leave, Jesus? Would you please get out of here? Would you please take your opinions elsewhere? And that's all they are. They're just opinions. That's how people react to Christians and their testimony. You should not be surprised by this. Whatever... Whenever a Christian is sharing their faith or living for Christ, it is like a light coming into a dark area. Jesus has already given the parable that that the kingdom of God, this kingdom that's coming, is a light. It's a lamp. It is not intended to be hidden. You put the lamp in the middle of the room on the table to light up the house. The light of the truth of the glory of the gospel in us is meant to be shared, and it's meant to be proclaimed. And Jesus said, by doing so, the world is going to hate you. 
Not everybody's going to hate you because those who believe will not hate you. They will become Christians and they will join you and that is how the kingdom grows. But the majority of the world is not going to like it. We have, we have been wrong and made a mistake. This church has been wrong in years past and made mistakes in this regard. What do we do to get people to like us? How do we get people to like us? How do we get people to come and like us? That is not the purpose of church or the gospel. The purpose of the gospel is the truth of the message and the reality of Jesus and His holiness and His resurrection. It's the power of that message that saves, but it's also the power of that message that causes townspeople to beg that you get out of the region. We don't want this here. So the demons begged. The townspeople begged. But verse 18 is beggar number 3, which is the man himself who's been delivered. As he, as Jesus was getting into the boat, so they've had their meeting, the townspeople have come, Jesus is actually doing what they asked. They asked him to leave, and he's like, well, I was only here for this guy. I'm headed back. The man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. What is he asking? I'm assuming that this man is a Gentile because the region is Gentile. But he's asking to be a disciple. He's asking to be one of these guys because imagine sitting there with Jesus having been delivered, having all of that cleaned out of his life, sitting there with Jesus, hearing him talk, the magnetism to Christ would have been, I want to be with you wherever you are. Who knows all the stories he heard? Who knows what Peter said? Well, if if it had been about 12 hours ago, he made the whole storm shut up. Like just Jesus, and who knows what all he heard? Look at verse 19. This is just a really interesting moment in the life and ministry of Jesus. He did not permit him. Now, Jesus is not saying, you can't be a Christian. That is not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you're not going to be one of these uh, disciples that follow me and are part of the ministry. I have something else for you to do. Look at what he tells him to do. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how He has had mercy on you. This is, in one sense, the first evangelist. If you go back into the other portions of the ministry of Jesus, He's telling them not to tell the story, isn't He? Why is He doing that? We've talked about that. In the Jewish regions, which Jesus was specifically sent to, the, probably the major reason is he's, he's trying to avoid messianic fervor that wants an army to be raised up. That's probably what he's trying to avoid most of all. But if he's in the Decapolis, in a Gentile region across the sea with a small Jewish population, primarily a bunch of pig-eating Gentiles, 
He wants that guy to go into that region, the Ten City region. That's what the Decapolis means. He wants him to go there and tell them what the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Verse 20, And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Now, I don't know, we don't know, but after the death and resurrection of Jesus, and after the the apostolic uh, movement and message starts spreading out, I wonder how many Christians come out of this region. Quite a few. Remembering back to the testimony of the man who cut himself in the tombs and had a legion of demons. We're going to get to meet this guy one day, which is a fun thing to think about. But I want this to be an encouragement to us that, one, Jesus has power over the demonic. We don't need to be afraid. Okay, We don't need to be afraid of demons. Not only does Hollywood do a good job of that, sometimes churches do a good job of that and overemphasize the devil and he's in every nook and cranny and he made your peanut butter and jelly sandwich taste bad. And every, I mean, he's everywhere. Uh, or we can go to the other extreme and there is no demonic activity and there's no such thing and everything's just what we see in, in the natural and that's not true either. There is a demonic world. There are angels, there are demons, there are spiritual beings God's in control and in charge over all of them, and greater is he who lives in me than he, specifically Satan, that is in the world, is what 1 John tells us. The other thing that's in here is seeing how powerful the message is of what Jesus has done for you and how He has shown mercy on you. The the encouragement that I want you to get out of this is that we are to be proclaimers of the truth and of the gospel with our lives, the way we live, but also with our story. In other words, and I know I've said this a million times, the gospel is not simply the way that you live, even though that's important. Us living lives consistent with Scripture, living in holiness as best that we can and repentance when we mess up, okay? Living for Jesus the best that we can, repenting when we mess up. But it's not just our lives and being nice to people and that's going to be the evangelistic outreach that we need to have primarily. That's important. Our conduct amongst the unsaved is really important, but that is not the primary message of the way the gospel works that just gives validity to the gospel message the gospel message of jesus christ and him crucified risen from the dead and i encountered the risen christ in my life he had mercy on me and this is when it happened and this is how i came to know him and this is an example of the forgiveness that he brought into my life that is requiring words out of your mouth. You've, you've got to be able to share. We cannot be incognito. 
trying to hide in the dark that we are Christians. I'm not talking about embracing every political cause that aligns most closely with Christian values. I'm talking about Jesus and His resurrection and His life-giving power and the cleansing blood that has cleaned us up from sin that we have experienced. We are supposed to tell people what the Lord has done for us. I am encouraging you that if there is a demon-possessed guy that has been totally set free, you may not have a story that dramatic. In fact, nobody in here has anywhere close to the drama of this story in your testimony. You could have been the worst sinner ever, and you don't have this story. Where'd Jesus find you? Well, I was a good old boy drinking in a bar. Where'd he find you? I was cutting myself in the tombs and breaking chains and possessed with 6,000 demons. Okay, your story beats mine, if that's the way we're measuring it. But that isn't how it's measured. What it's measured by is not by your corruption, because all of us are corrupt. It's measured by His goodness, faithfulness, holiness, love, and mercy. That's how the story is measured. And it comes in all flavors and shapes in our lives. People need to hear from us that we're Christians. Yes, they need to see it too. They need to see our lives lived out consistently for Christ. But they need to hear the gospel. I want to encourage you to not be afraid to share it. And I want to encourage you to realize you will be made fun of. You really, we should be asking ourselves, why am I not being made fun of more often? That is actually the real question. Why are more people not offended by my Christianity? I'm not suggesting that we be rude and mean. I'm suggesting, are we actually sharers of the mercy of Christ that we've received in our life? My daughters talk to me all the time and say, Dad, I go to a Christian school. Well, Live your life like a Christian in a Christian school. And, and share, still, you don't know. You're, you don't know. Everybody I work with is a Christian. So they said. <laughs> Listen, I'm, I'm not preaching dystopian futures, but we're clearly drifting uh, without a rudder, culturally, running into reef after reef. The boat is taking on water. We are sinking. That is my opinion. Uh, there is great cultural darkness around us, and it only gets darker as we go forward. I believe Scripture talks about that. Um, I'm not saying that we're in the last days per se, but we very well may be like the last, last, end, last. But what I do know, regardless of when Jesus is going to return, regardless of there's going to be a great revival and our culture will turn around because it was founded on Christian principles. Regardless of all that, what I do know to be true is is that there are dark places where you work and the people you live beside and the areas you frequent and the clubs you're in and the whatever you're doing online and you and I should be a light in those spaces. And the only way to be a light is not to just be a good person. It's to verbally share Look for opportunities to share. This guy here, and I'm finished, but this guy here, it says he proclaimed it. Do you know what that means? It means extra, extra, read all about it. Anybody remember that? 
That is the paper boy exclaiming and proclaiming that there's some brand new news on the front page of this paper that we want you to read. The only, the only way in our culture perhaps is to say every morning when you wake up, Lord, show me where the open doors for the gospel are today. Don't worry about tomorrow's open doors and don't worry about the doors you didn't walk through yesterday. Where are the open doors today? Let's stand up. I want to encourage you with this. We're not looking for great that you need to have a three-point sermon. Some of you have shared stories with me. Kenny shared, shared with me in the past that just little moments, little, little, little moments at work where he's able to just throw in a sentence, throw in a, a word about Christ, about Jesus, and you look for those, and, and those moments build it's weird how if you, you do that and you find these little places to do it, they'll come back to you later and say, I have some questions for you. I, how many of you have experienced that? I know you're a Christian, I have some questions for you. That, that's what we're looking for. That is what you're looking for and you're going to trust not in you, but you're going to trust in God that He brings those moments about and He will give you the words to say in those moments. So let's pray for that this week. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus and we thank you for this day. God, I thank you that this story demonstrates that it doesn't matter how many thousands of demons there are, you have total control over them. You live with us, you live in us. We have nothing to fear. You are greater. And Lord, because you're greater, because you've sent us out into the world to proclaim the gospel to every creature, just like this guy did, Lord, I pray that we would be emboldened and empowered by the Holy Spirit with boldness to speak your word. Lord, they asked in Acts chapter 4, Lord, grant with boldness we would speak your word and that signs and wonders would follow from the power of your spirit. God, I pray that we would have that boldness, that you would shake every room that we find ourselves in this week, that you would let us be lights. God, open doors of opportunity, even to the hardest critic that we know or the biggest skeptic or that smart guy that we're terrified of even mentioning that we're Christians because his, his questions are too hard. Lord, give us the simplicity of Christ, the boldness of the Holy Spirit. Let the mercy that we've received just roll off of our tongues as we share what you have done for us. God, I pray there would be a harvest. I pray our hearts would be lifted up by what you've done. That we would just be courageous. Not just this week, but going forward. And that it would increase. But we thank you for this. We give you glory for it. We magnify your name and we thank you for the mercy we've all received in Christ. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.
church, you are officially dismissed. Enjoy your families today. Look for open doors this week. We'll see you next time.